Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. In our continuing History 102 series, we do the Great Depression. Capitalism is dead. Long live capitalism. All right. So when we left off, we talked about the Great Depression and the four challengers, the four what was going to replace laissez-faire capitalism. And the first thing is laissez-faire capitalism wasn't going to go away. It's the incumbent. It's the incumbent champion. It's been around since 1750. Woohoo! It replaced mercantilism. It grew robustly during industrialization. Boom. Hey, there's a boom and a bust cycle. So what? We just have to wait. We've been here before. There's a panic in the USA every 10 years. Literally, go to the Wikipedia page for like depressions and recessions in the U.S. history, and there's one, there's something called a panic of every 10 years. And the last two or three years, and then we get over it, the world comes back, and then in another 10 years, boom, there's another panic. In 1929, there had been a recession in 1920-21 because of the, because of the, the Spanish flu. So it's every 10 years in my lifetime. I have lived through a an economic collapse every 10 years. We had stagflation in the 70s. We had the the savings and loan. We had stagflation in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, we had we had the savings and loan implosion of credit, especially this was worse in the Midwest than in the East and the West. But in the center of the country, you essentially and lost most of your banks. That was in the late 80s, and that was a recession that allowed Bill Clinton to win after three elections of conservatives, after, after Reagan won, Reagan two, and then George H.W. Bush. Suddenly, you get a Democrat winning. And that was because of the recession caused by the implosion of the savings and loan. Then there's the implosion of the internet stocks and the stock market in the late 1990s. Then there's the credit crisis and the great quote great recession in 2007 2008 and then there's the depression caused by covid so there is a recession and or depression every 10 years and i've lived through one every 10 years and if you're a millennial this is why you you can't earn any money you can't earn any credit why you might why why boomers make fun of you for living with your parents you're like well when you were a kid man life was good there wasn't a depression from 1945 to 1970, 72, when um, you had the uh, oil embargo. And the economy grew at 6% a year. My mom once told me stories. She's like, you know, I decided to get a job. I was 17, and I went, I'll just go get a job. And I walked into a bank, and I got, a, I got an offer. I went, okay, I'll take that. And then I walked to the next bank. And they offered me a job, too. So I took that one because that one paid more money. You know, you just walked in. You just, it wasn't a big deal. You just got a job. It wasn't hard. And I'm looking at her like she's insane. I'm like, are you crazy? Well, that's what 6% growth does. In my life, we've never had above 3% growth. Most of the time, we're living in a 2% growth world in my lifetime. In my lifetime. And I'm an Xer. Remember, I'm not a boomer. And I'm not a millennial. I'm an Xer. So, so hey, man, there's a panic every 10 years. You just deal with it. 
This is the conservative center-right response. Do nothing. Things will eventually work themselves out. Don't panic. In a panic. Two, dignity equals providing for yourself and your family. You're a man. Get a job. Start a business. Welfare makes you dependent, like a child, or worse, a woman. Poverty is a learning opportunity. Hard work will set you free. Now, that is a reference, hard work will set you free, that some of you, your ears may perk up and go, uh, Professor, that is a... Uh, quite the reference you're making. And yes, I am making it, and exactly for that reason. Exactly. Oh, we're going to get there, don't you worry. But yes... The idea is work will set you free. That's the idea of the rugged individualism. Work. Find a job. Three, and you still get this. I have friends who are conservative who say this even today in 2010. Government is bad at economics. Now, the government hires some of the best economics people in the country, but that's besides the point. And, the, and you get the people who are better spend at spending their own money than the government is. There's the constant idea that welfare equals waste and government spending is always corrupt and that the welfare, even if it's not waste, goes to the undeserving. It goes to, you know, those people. And I'm a white dude. I'm a middle class, upper middle class, white dude from New York. You know how many times I have heard people in my social bracket and above me say those people? A lot, especially when you're talking about welfare. Oh, those people. You know, those people who live in the projects. There's always a bracket around those people because it's done in a head nod. It's done in an eye. It's done in a wink. It's done in a, you know who I'm talking about. Like, we're compatriots on this, right? I mean, I know you're, you're a liberal professor and all, but we know about those people. That's who the money goes to. It never goes to the one thing you want. It's always waste Going, when you're a conservative, the, the government is bad at spending money, so it's always wasting money on stuff you don't like. And taxes on rich people and businesses, plus the regulations that go along on those rich people and businesses of how they can spend their money or how they can use their money, distort or hinder the economy. And that, that as much as I make roll my, you, you hear my epic eye roll at the government is bad at economics, People are better at spending their money. Welfare equals waste. That taxes on rich people slash businesses distorts or hinders the economy is a serious economic argument. It is serious economists, which I am not, do make that argument. Now, I, as a historian, will say, yeah, I don't care. I'm okay with those distortions. But that's, that is a, not a truth difference. That's a value difference. Conservative economists, of which most economists are conservative by nature, especially in the post-1980 world, the world we live in now, are, are going to view it. And this is the Milton Friedman School, Chicago School, is taxes on rich people and their businesses, plus those regulations, distort or hinder the economy. It, it, they, it puts money into weird places. It, it doesn't need to go. A good example of that is the inability or unwillingness. It's not that they're unable, they're unwilling. The unwillingness of, say, Apple 
and other multinational companies to bring money back to the United States from Europe, from Asia. So money they make in Europe, if they bring back to the United States, they have to pay a tax on that. They don't want to pay that tax. Now, we can argue whether it's too high or whatever, but Apple doesn't want to pay that tax. So what do they do? They dump that money. They dump their European money in Ireland, and it just sits there. Now, a conservative economist will say, well, that's a distortion, and it is a distortion. I, I can't argue with that. That money shouldn't just sit in some bank account in Ireland. It should do something. It should be invested. It should pay people. It should buy stock. It should do something. Instead, it's sitting there. And why is it sitting there? Because Apple doesn't want to pay tax on it by bringing it back to the United States. And so right now they're in a stalemate. Now Apple will say, make the tax lower to bring back than it costs me to keep it in Ireland. And the United States government says, no, that doesn't help us. You know, we need to buy stuff. We need to buy the military. We need to pay, you know, teachers. We need to pay old people their their Social Security. We need we we have Medicare to pay for. Like, we have to fix roads. We have to b rebuild bridges. We have to give internet to the the poor in rural areas so they could get a job. Like, dude, we need that money. And you're a trillion dollar company. And Apple says, well, I'm not going to bring it back. I don't have to. I'm going to sit in in Ireland and get taxed whatever it is, thirteen percent. So, so there you go. But that is a distortion. So, so this is the center-right complaint. Like taxes and regulations distort the free flow of money, which it does. Every time you set up a rule, money, uh, money goes around it. Money figures out how to go around it. This laissez-faire capitalism plus rugged individualism, go get a job, is the basic way the United States will work from 1929 to 1932 under Herbert Hoover and the Republican Party. And it will go until 1939 in most of democratic Europe. It stays in power. It is, the, it is hard to change, even in the Depression. Most societies don't want to change. And so they do things that maintain the current system. So what do they do? Well, one is, it's not that Herbert Hoover sat on it, put his head underneath his pillow and did nothing. I mean, he, he, he failed. Let's be honest. All these governments failed. You don't get World War II without a massive failure in government. But it's not like he did nothing. He was just hemmed in by his center-right philosophy. So what, what does he do? Things that try to help people maintain their jobs. So labor harmony, don't have strikes. People need to work. But the striking people need more money, and the companies want to fire people because they're not making as much money. So here, government will step in and be like, well, can we work this out? Can we work some peace between the union and the company? Like Rather than the company, the workers go on strike, everybody loses their job, the company collapses, Let's work something out. And the government will be the, quote, honest broker. The government will help companies. Remember, the, these are conservative right people. They want, they believe in capitalism. They believe in capital. They believe in the company is better than the workers. That's not a value statement. That just is. If you're on the center right, you think the company is more valuable 
as an entity than the people who work for it. That doesn't make you a bad person. It's just the company is bigger. The company employs a lot more people than the individual. And you go, hey, that that individual will will do fine. They'll find another job. They'll move on. The company is too big to fail. But the government will also help, and this is where the Hoover government goes a little bit to the left, will help the unions, will acknowledge the unions have an argument, and will try to be an honest broker, quote-unquote, between the two. How much of an honest broker is a whole question, because there's massive strikes during this time period, but that's, that's what the conservative right wanted to do, the center right wanted to do. Two, help charities. The government's not going to provide charity itself, but it will backstop private charities. It will give grants for bread and soup lines. It will give money to private charities to provide relief. The United States government does a lot of this today. You know, we all get upset over welfare, but a lot of how the government operates is by giving large chunks of money to private charities for them to do things with that money, which is welfare. You're just hiding it a little bit. So you get what was called at the time relief, not welfare, relief, government relief. But it was also means tested. The uh, obsession was for money not to go to people who don't deserve it, whether they be too rich or whether they be drunkards or whether they uh, actually have rich uncles that could support them. The idea was there's not enough money. We have to give it to the most deserving. So we have to figure out who that most deserving is. So we have to means test it, which means it's a humiliation of the poor because they some wealthy white dude in a hat. And by wealthy, we mean really a government employee who's middle class. But it's a white dude in a hat comes to your house and goes through your possessions to determine how poor you are. Do you have a refrigerator? Do you have a TV? Do you have a phone? Do you have, like, they would ask these questions. Like, not the TV. No one had a TV. But you see this, uh, we, I think it, in one of our lectures, we popped it up about poverty. And Fox News had their, traditionally do this every year, the poor people aren't really poor in America. 90% have a television. Well, they, that starts here. That idea that you, you can list possessions and be like, you're not really poor because you have a refrigerator. Dude, it came with the apartment. Like, I don't know what to tell you. You know, I got it from a friend. You know, they were throwing it out. It, it, it leaks in the back. I don't know. But the idea is to means test means you have to prove you're poor. And because people would hide wealth and because you couldn't, you didn't know how much someone made, you sent people to people's houses or the address that was listed on their taxes to actually go through their stuff. Three, and this is where kind of Hoover loses. And it's not, it's, this is his hindrance. This is the big problem. And we see this still today. People wanted to do this in 2007 with what's called austerity. And they wanted to do it again in 2000, uh, 2018, 2020. The idea of balancing the budget. That you should cut government spending, you should cut spending on government services, and the government should live much like a family. You, since it's collecting less, less taxes, it ha should have less spending and less debt. And that is 
the conservative way of thinking about money. I have less money. I should spend less money. And that is the place. That's the blind spot for Hoover. That's the blind spot for the center-right. And we're going to talk about that when we get to Keynesian economics. But the idea is the government should cut back. That, and along with what comes next, made the Depression worse. This is what that number three, balance the budget, is what ruined Hoover. Now, it's not his fault. I mean, it is his fault. But it's also he didn't have the vision of, of a broader philosophy. He was stuck in what the center-right thought. And the center-right thought, you have less money, you spend less money, you live within your means, which sounds very reasonable. It doesn't work for governments for a whole variety of reasons. One, governments aren't a family. You always see this. You, I saw it in 2007. I saw it in 1999. I saw it in 2020. That some politician gets up and goes, the government should live just like the family. Well, no, 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 no. Governments are not families. Governments are the opposite. Governments should work counter-cyclical. Because when families have no money, they need money. Who can give them money? But we'll talk about that. And finally, the thing that just was the torpedo that blew up not only Hoover and not only the Great Depression in America, but made it worldwide. The thing that turned the Great Depression from a, let me put this, the 29 recession into the Great Depression is number four, protectionism. The Smoot-Hartley Act in the United States, but there's also similar acts in the UK and France and in Europe, was the idea to close your trading empire to protect your businesses from competition. So you made very high tariffs on imports. Why? You make French wine too expensive for people to buy. You make a 300% tariff. So French wine goes from being 20 bucks a bottle to 60 bucks a bottle. Okay? What is the what is the goal of that? The goal of that is to make people buy American, buy American wine for 15 bucks or 18 bucks or 20 bucks or well no. Yeah, for 20 bucks, 25 bucks a bottle, right? So you're helping protect American industry by keeping competition from foreign, cheaper foreign imports. The problem is that the moment the United States did that, you got reciprocation. France raised its tariffs on U.S. wine exports in order to protect French vineyards. So you completely wiped out your foreign markets. So with number four, with protectionism, world trade essentially implodes. It stops. It freezes. It ends. World trade until 1945, 1946 really, essentially dies. It's over. Because all of these empires are going to close themselves off, close themselves off, close themselves off to try to keep everybody else out. But what that did was wipe out your ability to bring in money. So this is a complete failure in the United States and in Europe. Famously, you get Hoovervilles. You get these homeless towns where there's people have no credit, they have no jobs, they have no work, they have no dignity. And so they lose their homes. So what they do is to go to, pro to parks or abandoned areas and they they get whatever wood they can or whatever things will stick together and they build a little shack. 
And people did that together. And you got these Hoover towns. They're basically refugee camps of homeless people. You get protectionism. Exports crash. We just talked about this. It means a deeper depression. Exports crash. They're down 50% by 1932. That means less money, which means less jobs, which means a deeper depression. The balance of budget means government come back on spending, which means there's less money in the system, which means less work, which means less employment, which means a deeper depression. And the rugged individualism didn't work. I need a job. People couldn't, like, saying to someone, get a job. Well, yeah, I would love a job. Nobody has a job. It is 40% unemployment, dude. There are no jobs. There's no work. It's not laziness. I'm not unemployed because I'm lazy. There is literally no jobs to do. And it affects everybody. So you can't bullshit it. You can't be like, well, you know, those lazy uh, minorities, those lazy immigrants, everybody's unemployed. Your brother's unemployed. Your cousin's unemployed. You, if you're still employed, you're like, thank God, thank God. You're going to church or synagogue and thanking the big Lord for your job and hoping nothing bad continues to happen. Because you're probably also trying to support your brother or your brother's wife if he was killed in World War I. You're trying to help you know, your nieces and nephews not be in poverty. So your money is going less. And your, your, your company, your boss is coming to you going, look, I need you to take a little less money uh, in order to uh, keep, the, keep the, we don't have enough money. We're not selling enough stuff. So I need everyone to take a 20% pay decrease or we have to start firing somebody. You know, like, dude, that happened to us. That happens to the professors during COVID. The school came to us and said, there's less. There's less people taking classes. There's less money. There's less money from the county because there's less taxes. Like, if you, you, need, to take a, you need to take a pay decrease. Not a big one, but you do have to take one. Or, if you don't, we will fire people. We will fire, start firing professors. And the union got together. We talked about it and we voted to take the pay decrease, to save jobs. But, dude, that happened in 2020. The same thing that happened in, in 1929. So laissez-faire capitalism and rugged individualism fails. And in the United States, it equals a massive FDR win. Look at that map of that electoral map. I mean, we're going to talk about it later, but it's just a map. I mean, 1932 is one of the great landslides in all of all of electoral history. In the UK, you have the same failure. It's amazing. They do the same thing in 1929 that they do in 19, um, in 19, in 2007. It's austerity. So the UK is a complete wasteland economically, except for one area, home building, surprisingly. It's the one place that every article I looked at was like, well, there's home building. Well, everything else is dead. Coal in the North, dead. In Europe, F laissez-faire capitalism, you have a fight between communism and fascism. And that fight is going to cause civil wars. That fight is going to cause external wars. That fight is going to cause World War II is what it's going to cause. So, woo! All right, ready? Challenger number one, Keynesian social welfare economics. Government is the spender of last resort. Hey, man, debt is a state of mind. Or, 
how I stopped worrying and learned to love the modern world. Because this is the world we live in. We're dead. Don't matter, baby. It don't matter. Keynesian economics is the idea of John Maynard Keynes, who we don't do a lot of gay history here, and we still won't do a lot of gay history here, but here's a little gay history. He was gay. And then he became bisexual, which is usually not how it works. Usually people are start bisexual and then decide that they are actually gay. But he goes the other way. He ends up marrying a woman. But he is a rock star of economics. He hangs out with poets and painters and 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 econo- econ- he is an economist. But he, he's all over the the literary cultural world. And he is flamboyantly out. Which is very unusual given 1930s culture. And he's British, by the way. He's not American. But it's the world of what's left of the Weimar Republic. It's a different world. So there are spaces where you could be out. So this is, Keynes is one of them. Keynes is, is one of those people who is out and proud. You know. And he, his idea, Keynesian economics, is the government is the spender of last resort. That economics isn't about production, which the center-right laissez-faire capitalism is obsessed with. It's obsessed with the company making stuff in order to sell it. Keynes flips it. He says the company's less important. It's the buyer that matters. It's the consumption that matters. So the company doesn't need money to make stuff. People need money to buy stuff. And in a depression, everyone is protecting themselves, so money is sucked out of the system. We've kind of already talked about that with uh, American Express cutting down my credit limit, right? They s- literally sucked the money out of the system. I went from a, a $40,000 credit line, that means I could have bought $40,000 worth of stuff, to, boom, just a little bit above what I already owed. So they sucked all of that money, all of that difference out. It meant I couldn't buy anything. Why? Because American Express and Visa were protecting themselves. They were protecting themselves from me now spending 40 grand and turning to them and being like, hey, sucker, you gave me 40 grand and I can't pay it. So I'm out. Woohoo! But thanks. Thanks for all the free stuff I got because I needed it at the time because I didn't have a job. So they wanted to protect themselves from bankruptcy because if I do it and a million other people do it, they're they're screwed. So money gets sucked out of the system as everyone protects themselves. Only government can inject money back in. Why? Well, one, countries can print money. Governments can print money. Literally the only people who can print money in the, in the United States is the U.S. government. And I know you want to tell me about Bitcoin, but I can't use Bitcoin at Target. And you may go, well, there's a way and you can... Yeah, but money is way easier. So... Maybe Bitcoin will get there one day. Maybe all these fiat, you know, um, internet currencies will get there one day. But right now, fiat currencies still rule. They just do. Sorry. And countries are the only ones who can make them. Central banks can always borrow money. The United States, well, we have we don't have a central bank. We have the Federal Reserve. But the Federal Reserve can always borrow money. It can always get money. Governments can always borrow more money. Why? Because governments don't go bankrupt because they can print money. So central banks can always make more money. Three, the country, 
a country can tax rich people. It could always turn to its rich people and say, you're giving us money. In fact, the United States is going to tax people at 90%. It's going to tax the top 1%, which now pays. It's a little complicated in what they pay, but let's say they pay 35% on income tax. They were paying 91% by 1935, 1940. You could, oh, it's 91% by 1940 on the top 1% on what they made and their property. You could always tax rich people. They have money, you could always tax it. Four, nations need stuff. Roads, canals, dams, electricity, health, education. Those are cheap investments because people need jobs, suppliers need clients, and the nation says, I'm going to build the effing Hoover Dam. Do you know how much concrete is going to go into the Hoover Dam? Do you know how many thousands of workers we're going to need to build the Hoover Dam? We're going to electrify Las Vegas. That's what we're going to do. Like, we're going to invent Las Vegas with electricity and air conditioning. How many people are going to work building Las Vegas? Like, you could only get Las Vegas if you had the Hoover Dam. And you could only, and the only people who could build the Hoover Dam is a government. Private companies will not spend the amount of money to hire and get the amount of stuff in order to one day make, make Las Vegas big for casinos. Like, it doesn't work that way. It's too big. Infrastructure is just too expensive. It's too hard to do. So this is why I always like question like people say, you, you know, the government is bad at, at making stuff. Well, it built the freaking highways and it built the railroads. Well, it paid for the building of the railroads. It built the highways like it built a whole it built the Hoover Dam, dude. And it made the army. The army is the government. The, the, the U.S. Army is the army of the government. And every time you say it's the greatest army in the whole wide world, well, who made it that way? The U.S. government did. So countries need stuff. They always need stuff. And so they can now, in a depression, it's cheap because people you, you have plenty of people who are willing to work and suppliers need clients. So they are willing to give you, they're willing to sell you concrete at the, at the base cost, at, a, at the smallest margins. And government can, remember, can pay more than the smallest margins. They go, no, 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 no. We'll pay you more. Keep more people employed. Because governments can make money. In a depression, this is the kind of famous saying of Keynesian economics. In a depression, you pay a man to dig a hole, and then you pay another man to fill it. What does this mean? It means you want as many people employed as possible. And government has an important role in regulating the economy, prices, and wages. This is how we get the minimum wage. It didn't want... All of these unemployed people competing with each other for a small amount of jobs, they would be working for 10 cents an hour. They'd be working for a dollar an hour. And at a dollar an hour, they can't pay their rent, which means they're just going to be unemployed, which means they're going to be homeless. That's worse for the government. So the idea for Keynesian economics is to, you have to change capitalism to save capitalism. And the idea is like, whoa, 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 what about the debt? What about the debt? This is the, cons this is the conservative center-right argument. This is why Hoover doesn't want to do this. He wants to balance the budget, even though that sucks money out of the economy. Well, the idea is Keynes is, doesn't care. He's like, who cares about that? One, if you have a revolution, 
the revolution ain't paying that debt anyway. So it's better than having a revolution. You'll get your money back if, if you have if you save capitalism. Two, government can pay back any debt once the economy recovers and gets bigger, i.e. it's easier to pay back loans when you're making more money. This is why your credit cards, as you get older, I'm like, I, like those of you who are in your 20s, I know one thing. I know a couple things about you. But I know I have better credit than you. I know my credit cards are bigger than yours. Why? Because I've had more time to build up more credit, and I'm a better uh, risk for g- giving loans to. I walk into a bank. They're like, dude, here's your money. No problem. I want a loan. I want it at 3%. They're like, boom. There you go. We know you're good for it. You're cool. You're a teacher at a public institution, which won't go out of business. Uh, Let's face it. I'm an upper middle class white guy. That helps. Right? Three, I have good credit history. Right? They look at my credit score. They look at my credit history. Like, you've never gone bankrupt. You're cool, man. So here... You want to buy a house? Here's the money for a house. You go for it, man. Banks love me. Why? Because it's easier for me to be re- repay those loans given my economic situation. And as I get paid more, as I get older, when I was 20, I didn't have any of that. When I was 25 and I didn't have a job, when I was in graduate school, and I made $5,000 for a year. I had a year where I made $5,000. Like, that's the income I had to live on. So I didn't live on that. I lived on debt. I took out student loans. This is where, how most graduate students, whether they're in sciences, the humanities, medical, like, this is why you come out with $100,000, $200,000 in medicine and war. You come out with two, dollars $300,000 in debt. You know, it's not the tuition that cost me the money. It was the living expenses because I needed to be a professional student and I had no income I had to pay rent I had to pay rent in New York and I lived with 14 other graduate students in a house I lived in a room with 14 other people like that sucks man who who wants to do that that's what poor people do because I was poor when I was 25 I'm not poor anymore I'm upper middle class. Like, there's no, like, people hide. Oh, where, where are you? Dude, I'm a, I'm a professor. I'm a part of the professional, educated, working, um, not working class, um, white collar class. Like, you all know what I make. You know? So, it's not any secrets. But the idea is, debt is a state of mind. It's not, like... People like in the United States. Oh my God, the 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 budget is a trillion dollars in debt this year. Okay, U.S. economy is twenty trillion dollars. That's not that big of a deal. Like I don't care about putting a McDonald's meal, like dinner one day for me and my family on the credit card. I don't care why, because I make many multiple times that McDonald's meal. It just doesn't. It's not. It doesn't matter. Oh, it's debt. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Now, I put a house on a credit card. That's a different thing. Right? But debt is a state of mind. Instead, and this is what Keynes is trying to argue, and this is what like Paul Krugman argues. This is what Keynesian economists 
uh, this is what left economists, this is what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are arguing. Think of debt as an investment in people. Like this is what Joe Biden wants to do with the current um, the infrastructure package where he's going to invest in childcare and free community college. And maybe by the time you listen to this, all this stuff will pass. Maybe it won't. But he wants to invest. Progressives want to invest in you. Why? Because if you have an education, you're going to get a better job. That better job will pay you more money. The government will make it back on your investments, on your taxes, on your home property, on your children, all the shit you're going to buy when you have kids. Right? If you're too poor to have kids, the government is losing money. So remember, governments don't think in lifetimes. The United States is 300 years old. It thinks in centuries. Right? England is a thousand years old. So it, it, a country can't think in, oh, uh, what are we going to do in 10 years? They think in centuries. What is life going to be like in 100 years? So what we get is the FDR New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And this becomes basic Western economics from 1945 to 1980. And it works. In 105 days, FDR had 15 major bills. This is why today we talk about the first 100 days. Because in 105 days, FDR had 15 major bills to, to revolutionize the economy. To put that into perspective, Joe Biden in his first 100 days had one bill. Trump had two bills in four years. We don't do this anymore. That's not an insult to Trump, and it's not an insult to Biden. It's just democ democracies are slow. We'll see this when we talk about fascism. Dem and, and the United States democracy has very much slowed down. But that's the comparison. This is why today FDR is seen as the like thing to be compared to. Well, you're never going to be FDR, ever. No, no one's ever going to be FDR again. I mean, the closest you had was Obama. Because Obama had one of those elections in 2008 that was a landslide. Every Democrat on the um, every Democrat who was up for reelection up for election won. It was one of those kind of elections. They happen. They have they happen rarely. They happen less now, but they happen in 32. They happen in 36. They happen in 64. They happen in 72 for conservatives for Republicans in 72. They happen in 84, again, a new a conservative one for Reagan. And then they happened for Obama in 2008. So what is that, 20 years since the last one? So they just don't happen very much. And Obama didn't get, even though he had 60 votes in the Senate, he had control of the, his, the Democrats had control of the House, he doesn't get 15 major bills. They get one, two? I don't even know how much he got done. In he, I mean, there's Obamacare, but that's not in the first 100 days, I don't think. No, it's definitely not. I don't think. See, it's hard to remember. But the idea was government spends a shit ton of money on stuff to make people's lives better. And we see this kind of stuff all the time. Infrastructure. They build highways like the Key West land bridge that connects South Florida to Key West. They build bridges all over the place. They build 800 airports. Oh, what about Philly? Well, they built the PACO, the Ben Franklin uh, Bridge Camden River Line, is, which is now basically the PACO they built. 
They renovated City Hall in Philadelphia and City Hall in Camden. They paved Haddon Avenue. So South Jersey got a ton of money. They paid cultural artists, authors, photographers, playwrights, concerts from symphonies to bluegrass. That's how the Philadelphia Symphony becomes one of the best in the world, was money it received during the New Deal. Jackson Pollock does a whole series of Philadelphia murals that are now in the Art Museum. You can go and see them. The Walt Whitman House is saved in Camden. They end prohibition and then tax the shit out of the liquor, which is smart. It's what we call sin taxes. But we, we're doing it now on marijuana. Marijuana is legal. It's going to be it's legal in Jersey. It hasn't yet started to be sold legally in Jersey, but what's going to happen? It's going to have a massive tax on it. And that tax is going to go cause all kinds of good stuff. So you get you get, hey, you want to do something that's bad for you? Great. Do it, but you're going to pay for it. And people say, "That's cool. I like that." So they ended prohibition. People wanted to drink, and government said, "Well, you're going to pay a tax on that." And people said, "No problem." Social welfare, but the things that's kind of the longest running stuff is the social welfare protections that you don't even think about anymore. The FDIC that protects people's investment in banks so that you don't, banks go out of business all the time. Nobody cares. Why? Because your investment up to a certain amount is protected. You're going to get it back. In fact, you probably never lost it because what the government really does now is a whole very impressive thing is the, the, um, FDIC comes in. They're part of the um, I, 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 IRS, Treasury Department. They come into the bank, and basically they find a buyer for the bank. They find another bank to take over the failed bank. And so you walk in, and it's now Joe's bank. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. It was uh, Mary's bank yesterday, but now it's Joe's bank. Okay, um, I, want my eight, I want $800 back. And they go, great, no problem. It's right in your account. And you're like, oh, okay, great. You have mortgage loan security. Almost all mortgages these days are backed by the U.S. government. Stock market regulations. So you don't have the speculation that led to the 29 crash. That's why it takes till 1954 for the stock market to recover to 1929. They basically made it not a place for you to speculate. If you wanted to make money, you invested your money somewhere else, not in the stock market. Minimum wage. So that poor people could, one, make enough money to survive, but also didn't undercut other poor people in trying to get uh, jobs. Social Security, retirement for old people, because the problem for, of old people is they need money, which means they are going to work because they, they already have the job. The problem is, is young people need a job and young people burn shit down. And so the government looks at those two things and says, old people, we will pay you to not work. And old people say, oh, my God, thank you. My knees and my back are killing me. And then it turns to young people and say, you get that job. Don't revolt. And young people say, oh, that's cool, man. I don't want to revolt me. It's way too, oh, dude, I want to play World of Warcraft. Revolting is, takes way too much time. You also get welfare. And now we could put quotes around welfare because in the New Deal, from this point on, it really means anti-child poverty. Welfare wasn't paying people, you get unemployment insurance too, paying people who are unemployed, but welfare meant we don't want kids to be in poverty. So we'll just give you money to spend on your kids. So that's the idea of welfare, 
of what welfare is. And that's the welfare Ronald Reagan will attack in the quote-unquote welfare queens. That they got all this money for having like seven kids, and then what did they buy? A Cadillac with it. They didn't buy stuff because they're bad moms. Oh, they're bad black moms. We, we can't take out that the African-American part because it was totally racist the way Reagan talked about it. The welfare queens are always minorities who are stealing money that are meant for somebody who deserves the money, like children, and then using it for themselves to have stuff you wish you had. And in America, you add that racial component to it. Just wait for part three of this course. It's going to be fun. But this is why, like, systemic racism? Historians know systemic racism is the way America works. And historians, this is not, like, new. This is, like, yeah, of course. Like, the, the critical race theory, yeah, like, it's just called history to us. This is why I've always had, like, this thing blew up in the news, and I was like, I went to my graduate school pals, and I went, we didn't learn about this stuff. And they're like, no, man, it's just history. It's like, that's, and I'm like, that's what I thought. It's like, of course there's, of course there's systemic racism. It's all over. It's in the New Deal. The New Deal locked people like Social Security was for white people. Southern Democrats didn't want the New Deal to, to liberate black people, to give black people money directly. And so it was always a little cut back, cut back, cut back for African-Americans. So they were always cut out of things. Now, you didn't say black people can't receive unemployment. It was you can't receive unemployment if you are a day laborer, which just happened to mostly be black folk. You know, they do it through that kind. That's why it's systemic, because it's not the racist part. It's the system part. That is how it works. Government starts spending on knowledge. It needs to know what America is like. And so the government needs to know the country. So it will hire artists. And since I, it will hire photography, it will hire sociologists and historians and psychologists. Remember, depression is a psychological word. It's not an economic one. It's not a word out of economics. It's a word out of psychology. And so I'm going to do the photographers, the famous photographers that come out. And we'll do three of them. We have Dorothea Lange, who's probably the most famous or has the most famous photographs that come out of the, of the Depression. She goes out west, California, Arizona, uh, Nevada, and she's photographing migrants, Mexican immigrants, rural poverty that's on the move. These are people in tent cities looking for jobs. These are people from the Midwest, the, what was called the Dust Bowl. Drought and climate change wiped out the mid Midwest. And so all these farmers were on the move. Work camps, temporary jobs, poor women with poorer children, no shoes, like looking for just a day's work on a farm somewhere where they could pick like the strawberries for a couple of pennies. Gordon Parks is he's some of you may will know him from shaft from being the the director i think he's the director of shaft but he becomes basically the most famous african-american photographer of the 20th century and he's hired to basically do the african-american experience that's what he's going that's the world he knows he's going to do that it's not the only world he does but 
that's a lot of his depression photo photography. And his most famous photo is the American Gothic Washington, D.C., where you have he followed a, a woman who was a uh, cleaning lady. And there's this, he photographs her at work and at home to show just how uh, this one laborer is trying to get by in the Depression. And her, his most famous photo is this woman with her mop and her broom and the American flag behind her. And it's called American Gothic Washington, D.C. And it's a play on the famous American painting, American Gothic. So it's, it is what it is to be an American. Right? American Gothic, it's a former, it's a man and his daughter. It's not his wife. Lots of people think it's a wife. It's a man and his daughter. That's who it's supposed to be. And um, we got the house in the back, and he's holding the um, implement of farming. So they're good, salt-of-the-earth Americans. That's what he's making the equivalent to. He's trying to show the dignity of work. The dignity of equality. And so one of the things he likes to do is shoot shoot people, photograph people from underneath, looking up. You see in the picture of him at the top, in the top left, that that's the pose he would take or one of the positions he would take. Why? Because that's the hero pose. It elongates. It enlarges the shoulders. It's the way Superman is always represented. Not straight not from above which is a, which is uh a, which causes the lens to make smaller this is why uh um drone photography looks the way it does as it goes up everything recedes it gets smaller it takes up less space it becomes less important but if you shoot from if you photograph from below it becomes bigger and He's showing the tr psychological trauma of racism. One of the famous pictures is the one in the lower right where an African-American boy is given two dolls, a white doll and a black doll, and asked, which is the good child? And it was a psychological study. And these black kids were picking the white kid. And he's saying that's the psychological tra trauma of racism. He's showing that in his photography, what the statistics was telling people. Well, we're in psychological journals. They're like, look, we did this study, and all these black kids keep saying that the white, the white doll is the good child. Why? We don't know. And Gordon Parks is like, dude, it's racism. But the world didn't see it. It was locked away in these psychological journals, in these studies. And he blows it up into Life magazine. So, and there's another picture of an African-American woman dignified in her mirror. And what's important is the woman, of course, in her bedroom. So it's a private space. She's got dignity. She's in quiet contemplation. Now, remember, there's a man photographing her in the mirror standing there. And she's in quiet contemplation. And there is a giant picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That Franklin Delano Roosevelt is the blackest president since Lincoln. Then talking about work and talk about dignity, talk about equality, he didn't go racist. He didn't say only for white people. Black people were included. Now, they weren't given the same opportunities in the New Deal as white people were. But at least he talked to talk of inclusion. Nobody else was. 
And he was a Democrat, which is the party of slavery, which is the part. It completely changes. The Democrats starting in 32, starting, it completely transformed in 36 and, and onward becomes the Democrats become the party of the minority, of the immigrant. It wasn't previously. It had been the Republicans. So we start to see the change, and the real change starts in the 70s. And you'll see this as we do electoral college math and the such. But Gordon Parks has seen this, and American can see it in his photographs. Things they couldn't see before, and now it's showing up in their Time magazine, in their Life magazine, in their Look magazine. They can now see it. They can be confronted by it. Because when you look at the picture of the deli owner with the watermelon, that's dignified. That's the dignity of work. You have to be a real racist, even for an American, to look at that and go, nope, that guy, that guy isn't as good as me. Right? That guy is, is worse than I am. Or to look at the picture of the young boy picking the white child, the white doll, and not be heartbroken by that. Like, liberal, middle-class, educated Americans look at that and go, that's terrible. I don't want that. And that's in America. We're, we're racist. Like, we just are. And when confronted, but when confronted by it, remember, we're still Lockean, Enlightenment, descended people. We still believe all men are created equal. So, Marion Post Wolcott. Now, I, I include her of our three because she's local. She's from Montclair, New Jersey, and from Philly. She saw Nazism and fascism in Europe while studying in Vienna. So when she comes back uh, to the United States and starts doing photography, she wants to show the effects of government relief in the New Deal, how America is not Nazism, how democratic life is worth saving, how people can have fun and dignity and humor. She liked to photograph a lot of humor, humorous stuff. Like one of her famous photographs is her stuck underneath uh, barbed wire for a ca cattle fence because she tried to get a good shot and tried to burrow under it and got stuck. You know? And so it's it's these scenes of like ordinary Americanness. So there's there's black folk doing the jitterbug. They're not worried about the depression. Like they're in the depression. Their lives suck. But they're having fun right now. They're living in the moment. And that moment is not happening in Nazi Germany. There's a young man you know doing, uh, checking the heartbeat, checking the lungs and heart of a young boy, right? He's dignified. He's dressed in his whites, right? He's a medical practitioner for a young man. And below that is black and white people playing checkers together. There's a white man, a black man. There's a white boy watching. There's other people hanging out, a bunch of African-American men hanging out. The idea is that's democracy. That's, that's, you can live together. That's not Nazi Germany, which is, which is, when this photograph is taken, exterminating its minorities. Probably the most important thing rhetorically FDR talked about was the four freedoms. Freedoms to and freedoms from. A combination of conservative and liberal ideas. Freedom of speech. 
conservative idea. And Norman Rockwell will paint these and call them the four freedoms, and it's freedom of speech. So there's a young man uh, speaking his mind at a New England town uh, meeting, town council. And uh, he's not an educated man. He's not a businessman. Like, you could tell by his clothes, right? He's a working man. But he's getting up to speak his mind. There's freedom of worship, right? Freedom to, I mean, we say of, but it's freedom to worship the God that you want. And so what you see is the painting, each according to the dictates of his own conscience. And you have Christians, but also Jews, but also Muslims as well. There's black, there's white, there's brown. There is fear from. Now, fear from stuff is a liberal idea. Free to is conserve. Free to speak. Free to worship. Conservative ideas. Freedom from fear is a liberal idea. And in the painting from Norman Rockwell, the young, the family, uh, parents are putting their kids to sleep. The kids are sleeping, right? But in the father's hand is the is the newspaper about the blitz in Europe, about the terror bombings. That right now in England, in London, parents can't put their kids to sleep in a bed without worrying that they're going to be bombed by the Nazis. And as time will go on, that will reverse. That German parents, and you can go, oh, they're evil, they're Nazis, but they're still parents of young children couldn't put their kids to bed without being afraid of being obliterated in a firestorm or by a thousand-pound bomb. Like, terror bombings are bad for all parents because they terrorize the family. And so this is freedom from. And then finally, freedom from want, which is a, nor- which is a liberal idea. And it shows a Thanksgiving Deal dinner with a nice 20, 25-pound turkey, right? But it's all the families together, right? It's all these generations. It's the layout, right? It is something that can't happen in the Depression. That can't happen in World War II. That's why it's freedom from want that you should be able to do these things. But the Depression sucked all the money out for you to have nice things, and then World War II demanded that you sacrifice in order to win the war. So you didn't have, you couldn't have a 25-pound turkey. You couldn't have everybody over. This is a dream painting when it's painted. It's the way we wish Thanksgiving could be in 1942. (sighs) The New Deal is so successful, the rugged individualism idea of conservatism is effectively dead into the 1980s. It starts to gain life again in the 70s, but it's really Reagan that brings it back. But it's dead. It is dead. People are laughed at who want to have, like, less regulation on the stock market in the 1960s. Like, they're just laughed at. Nobody would take it seriously. They're like, you remember the Depression, right? So it took to 1980. It took to a generation of people had to die who lived through the Depression and were like, no, I don't want to go through that again. They had to die. And the next generation who came of age a little later had to come in to power and say, you know, 
we've been doing this a long time. We could change a little bit. It's not so bad. Right? But Roosevelt will win four terms, and he'll have massive wins in 36 and 40. I don't include 1944 because that's during the war, and it's highly unlikely any, any president would lose in, a, in, the, in, in 1944. It's just Democrats, Democratic peoples just don't like change that much, especially in major wars. Um, the Democrats had 75% of the House. Look, in, 19, in 1932, Roosevelt wins 472 electoral votes versus an incumbent who won 59 who basically won, what, five states or so? Six states? He won even more in 1936. That tells you just how successful in the minds of people the New Deal was, how much they liked the New Deal. He wins 523 to eight. Like, that kind of win is Lincoln in 80, in 64, Roosevelt here, Johnson in 64, 1964, Nixon in um, 72, and then Reagan in 84. Like, that's it. You, you could count them almost on one hand. The kind of wins. And remember, the Lincoln one is a star because it's one during a war, and two, the Democrats were the rebels. So, <coughs> it's hard to do. It's, it's, you know, like, that one is, gets an asterisk for being an electoral wipeout. Republicans only had 16 seats in the Senate in 1936. They don't matter. Democrats could pass any bill they want. So the question was, how liberal will the bill be before the Southern Democrats, the conservative Democrats, say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's going to help black people too much. And that's the only question. So we have essentially one-party rule. Like, for all the talk about America has two parties, we had one-party rule until 1972. That's the most since Republicans dominated from 1860 to basically 1912. And you go, well, what about Eisenhower in the middle? Well, Eisenhower is, yes, he's a Republican, quote-unquote, but he's, all of his policies, he has an entire Democratic Congress he has to deal with, he keeps the New Deal in. He's essentially a New Deal, quote, Republican, quote. Like, he's not a conservative. That's why, we, look at what we bought. Look at what he did. We got the highways out of it. We got the interstate highway system out of Eisenhower. That's not conservative. That's not rugged individualism. That's the New Deal. That's Keynesian economics. So basically, this becomes the economic practice of the OECD countries. The UK will get the NHS healthcare, which is essentially communism. The government pays for it and is the employer. France gets pro-NATO policies, free education, the 35-hour work week. Scandinavia is famous for its massive redistribution of taxes, becomes the best welfare states in the world, and gets the highest standard of living in the world. Like... I wish you Americans could live in Sweden for a while like I did. It's awesome. You would be like, dude, I get August off. You get an entire month off. You get just take August off. Like Americans work way too hard. And the problem is Americans don't live with other countries enough to realize, oh man, our stuff sh sucks. So 
until 1980, we live in a New Deal world. That's the winner. Because Roosevelt wins, and then Roosevelt really wins, and then Roosevelt wins again. Americans like their government doing stuff to help them. They wanted Obama to save their mortgages. And that's one reason why he got wiped out in 2010. They wanted Trump and Biden to give them 1500 bucks. I when when the pandemic started, I was like, we're going to get universal health care because the pandemic is going to be so expensive that hospitals are going to going to buckle. And we're going to get and basically the government said, look, we're just just don't charge for like we'll pay you for covid like like we'll worry about that later. And then I thought we were going to get a UBI. We were going to get a check every month. And I'm going to tell you, if President Trump had done the liberal UBI, if he had gone to his conservative Congress and Mitch McConnell and said, F you, I'm giving people money, he'd be president. He would have won re-election in a landslide. And I am not a fan of President Trump. But Americans like their government helping them in a crisis. He would have won if he gave everybody 1500 bucks a month. He would have won in a landslide. And so his advisors were pinned in by being conservatives. They're like, no, we can't give money to people. Dude, you give money to people, you get reelected. Then you get to do whatever the hell you want. So if you're a President Trump fan... You have every right to be mad. He, the election was not stolen from him. He lost it. But he lost it because his advisors and his Republican Congress didn't help him. The Depression proved that people want government to help them. It's very Confucian in a way. It's, very, it's paternalist, but it's Confucian. It is, we will give you stuff, work, taxes, our labor in war, but you have to help us when we need it. Rugged individualism, the laissez-faire capitalism was, or um, what's his name now, who wants no taxes? Um, Norwich, nor, oh, what's his name? It's going to bug me. Grover Norquist. They want government to not do anything because they say, oh, well, you, you'll have complete freedom. You'll be able to do whatever you want. Well, yeah, but you also have no protection from the world. And the world is big, and it's scary, and capitalism will grind you up. History is very clear on this. This is why historians, most, a lot of historians are liberals. Because it's hard to be a conservative. It's just hard. Because you look at it and go, but you need to help people. Capitalism is too hard for one person to rise above. It just is. Racism is too big. Industrialization grinds people up. And you could be like, well, you know, be uh, uh, Horatio Alger and rise above. Horatio Alger had, had benefactors who gave him money, who gave him connections. So does Pip in Great Expectations. Like the success stories of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, somebody gave you a bootstrap. Someone gave you a roof before that. Someone gave you clean water. Someone gave you food. It's why I'm a proponent of free food in schools, in all schools. 
preschool all the way up to college. Should be free food. Why? Because if you are hungry, you cannot do work in my class. You cannot concentrate. And you go, well, what about people who already have money for food? I don't care. It doesn't cost that much. Especially in America. America, food is cheap. It will help the farmers by buying the food from them. But more importantly, it helps my students. And if it doesn't humiliate them, then great. Giving only the poor kids free food, it humiliates them. Which means most of them won't take it, even though they need it. Because dignity matters. That's what the Romans teach us. The Roman Republic imploded because the people didn't have dignity in their unemployment. Because the Roman economy couldn't help the Roman uh, yeoman farmer. It was the economy was turning in. It was income inequality. Income inequality was ripping Rome apart into the rich, the haves, and the have-nots. And the have-nots didn't have the haves had money, but the have-nots did not have dignity. And what did the have-nots do? Destroyed the republic, and put in a guy Octavian Augustus who promised them dignity. So that's where we'll leave with that. So if you're ever president and you ever have an economic crisis, spend money. Spend an ungodly amount of money. If anyone has an idea and it costs money, say yes, and you will get reelected. And you'll get reelected in a landslide. And they'll put your freaking uh, monument up in Washington, D.C., and maybe I'm Mount Rushmore. You'll be a hero to your people. Spend money because citizens need help. And they will blame the government for not helping them. They expect the government to help them. That was Hoover's problem. It was a philosophical problem. It wasn't an attitude. It wasn't, it wasn't intelligence. It wasn't he didn't know. It was his philosophy said, I can't do that. Because if I do that, it proves my philosophy wrong. So, be safe, take care. In our next episode, we do communism, what it's supposed to have been, communism, what it became, i.e. Stalinism. So, good luck, be careful. It gets hard now.